Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. The past two years of pandemic-induced uncertainty have opened the doors for risks that finance executives have not had to manage at scale for decades, rapidly rising inflation and its knock-on effect of currency volatility. On this episode of the Financial Executives Podcast, as part of our longer ongoing forward-thinking series, I am joined by Amal Dargalkar from Chatham Financial and Dr. Elizabeth Gordon from the Fox School of Business to learn about how these new risks should be reported, measured, and hedged against when possible. Really excited to be kicking off the first forward thinking session of the year with Amal Dargalkar and Elizabeth Gordon. But before we get into our conversation on inflation, currency volatility, and what this means for your balance sheet, Amal and Elizabeth, could you please give us a brief overview of your background, your experience, and perhaps even tell us how you found yourself in the roles that you're in today? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting us, uh, Shivani, and uh, nice to meet all of you. Uh, my name is Amal Dargalkar. I work at Chatham Financial. I am responsible for Chatham Financial's support and coverage of our corporate clients. Uh, as a firm, uh, Chatham works with uh, several thousand companies across the globe in the area of financial risk management, uh, interest rate, currency, and commodity risk, uh, primarily uh, extending as well into capital structure decisions that our clients make. Uh, so with over 600 employees, 3,000 clients, multiple multiple offices uh, across the globe. We have a lot of expertise in this area. Uh, and as I mentioned, I've been doing this for about 20 years uh, myself. Uh, and uh, well, I'll spare you the story of how I ended up here, but uh, but I'm thankful to have uh, found uh, a place uh, in this niche area that has become quite important, uh, particularly over the course of the last year. So that's a little bit about me. Great. Hi, and um, it's great to be here with you today. I am Elizabeth Gordon, Professor of Accounting at the Fox School of Business at Temple University. My primary area of research is accounting and financial reporting, specializing in international accounting and financial reporting. I've conducted research, though, in a, a number of areas, including corporate governance and auditing. I am a CPA. Um, I worked at Pricewaterhouse for a number of years after earning my undergraduate degree from Indiana University. Um, after um, working um, as a CPA for Pricewaterhouse for a few years, I decided to pursue my MBA at Yale University and then went on to pursue my PhD at Columbia University, where I did my dissertation on um, essays in inflation accounting and valuation. A very timely topic now. Um, I have been a professor for almost 25 years with faculty appointments at the University of Chicago, Rutgers University, and as a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And again, it's great to be with you here today. Thank you so much to the both of you. And just hearing the vast backgrounds and spaces that you both come from, I'm almost certain that this will be a very enlightening and fruitful conversation. And before we jump into the nitty gritties, I always believe it's actually very important to set the level. There's a lot of discussion around the increase and persistence of inflation. Elizabeth, 
you, I know you've done some research on inflation and its impact on accounting. How is the current environment similar or perhaps different to the previous inflationary cycle? Great. Yeah, thanks, Giovanni. Happy to address this. Um, I studied inflation with a focus on how inflation affects companies' performance and their financial position and where we would see this reflected in the financial reports. Um, this is from an accounting perspective. I'm, I'm an accountant, not an economist. Um, still, it's important to have an understanding of the forces behind inflation and the context in which we're operating in. Um, when you look at where we are today from a historical perspective, we've had relatively low inflation under 5% for over a decade and a very long period before that. When um, 2008, there was a spike in inflation with gas prices. In the early 90s, another spike with the invasion of Kuwait and Desert Storm. But even prior to that, for a long time, inflation was relatively low. Um, Kind of in, in recent memories, though, the highest periods of inflation uh, were in the 70s and early 80s with oil shocks uh, of the 70s. Inflation at that time um, you know, was about 5%, but then when it has high, has 12 or 15% during that period. And periodically throughout the last century or over the last century or so, it's interesting to look back and see that there's some periods like after World War I and World War II that were inflationary and the inflation there was primary driven, primarily driven by um, pent-up demand. There are some other factors as well, but after the wars, we saw that pent-up demand kick in. Where we are now, I think most would agree that inflation we're currently experiencing is driven by pent-up demand from the pandemic, um, coupled with supply chain disruptions and labor shortages as people left the workforce with the pandemic or choosing different opportunities. Um, so I think most would agree those are some of the uh, drivers that we're seeing today with inflation. You mentioned the, the supply chain disruptions and the pent up demand uh, as a result of the pandemic that's slightly similar. But I'm all, I, I want to get a better understanding from you if there's a strong correlation between the rising inflation and its impact on currency volatility. Are we seeing that correlation play out in the current environment? Why or why not, in your opinion? So uh, it's it's pretty uh, common for uh, for most uh, market participants to think that with high inflation comes a, a weakening of their home currency, uh, and uh, if if that's the only statement we were looking at, if you look over the last six months, I have a chart up here. Uh, the dollar has actually strengthened by about uh, on a broad base of, of indices. Look at the dollar index about five to six percent, uh, which is surprising given all we keep hearing about, as, as Elizabeth mentioned and you've mentioned, Johnny, is inflation, inflation, inflation. Uh, the, the challenge, though, is that uh, when thinking about a, you know, currency volatility, it's not just about uh, your home currency. It's also about another currency in which you are operating. So Eurozone, for example, inflation is also running hot in the Eurozone. Uh, it's running at about 5% uh, or thereabouts generally uh, in, in the Eurozone, maybe a smidge under that. And so while the headline inflation in the U.S. Uh, is you know, relatively high, it's also quite high in the Eurozone. Uh, that might be negating the impact uh, a little bit of, of inflation on the strength of the dollar. 
Uh, but you specifically asked about currency volatility. And, and as, as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, our last period of such prolonged uh, significant inflation was certainly at a different time period uh, and different historical context. Uh, the, Euros, uh, the Eurozone itself existed, but the Euro currency uh, did not exist back in the 70s and the 80s. Now, we didn't have all of these different tools of monetary policy. Uh, we didn't have quite the level of deficit spending that we have uh, globally, uh, not just in the U.S. Uh, so there's a lot that's different about the last bout of inflation that we've uh, we've seen. Uh, so hard to compare whether currency volatility is higher or lower now uh, than it was then, uh, other than we just have much more free-floating currencies uh, out there. Uh, so I think generally what you've seen, though, in the course of the last uh, year and a half is there has been more currency volatility. Uh, we have seen the dollar both weaken and strengthen o- over that time period. So companies have been somewhat whipsawed. Uh, maybe they've been fortunate enough to just average into not having much of an impact. Uh, but for the most part, what we're seeing is a lot of our clients have you know, been dealing with this increased volatility, not just as a result of inflation, but but certainly somewhat driven by it. Thank you so much, Amo. And you mentioned that you can't really tell which um, currency will be the most impacted, where these currencies are heading. But it looks like there's an attendee question that asks, what are the currencies that you expect will see the most volatility in 2022? Is this something that you think you can speak over? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question to answer, but but thank you for, for asking it, Giovanni. Uh, I think uh, among the many challenges is that inflation is just a single component of what drives uh, currency volatility. In addition to uh, inflation, there's, of course, uh, the monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, the state of uh, the economic recovery uh, in the respective uh, zones. Uh, so it's really hard to, to say. We've certainly start, ended last year and started this year with a fair bit of emerging market currency volatility. Uh, for those of you that have been following uh, along uh, the saga in Turkey, uh, that, that has been uh, dramatic uh, to say the least, uh, and some counterintuitive uh, policies being applied uh, there from an economic uh, perspective. But that's had, that has a real impact, uh, as you probably have noticed, uh, on the currency. Uh, but if we look at some of the more major currencies, uh, there are other factors is worth considering. So uh, the Eurozone, uh, as I mentioned, is experiencing also high inflation, uh, but yet the dollar has strengthened. Uh, We've gone from roughly call it 118 uh, to about 113 uh, on uh, the currency. So move about four some odd percent over the last several months. And you know that could be driven by so many things, including uh, an expectation that interest rates in the US are set to rise faster than interest rate in the Eurozone. And so really hard to say which currencies are going to have the most significant impact uh, from a volatility standpoint just due to inflation. Uh, one other item to, to mention is that we have a lot of uh, countries around the globe that are uh, natural resource producing countries uh, whose currency might be even more tied to the price of oil, for example. Canada is a, a prime example of that uh, than it is necessarily to the inflation rate and, and now, of course, those are correlated uh, in and of themselves. Uh, we, you know, we're all paying more for things uh, these days, and our credit card bills are probably higher than they used to be, partly because we're paying more for fueling up our cars or heating oil. So, um, so, so hard to say which currencies, but uh, there's so many other factors uh, to look at. So, hopefully, that that gives some context to, uh, for for the question that uh, that our audience member asked.
That most certainly gives a lot of context to what the attendee had asked. And I'm exceptionally glad that you bring up um, interest rates and the potentiality of it increasing a lot quicker in the United States than in the Eurozone. But it seems that that specific comment has garnered some traction within our audience. And there's somebody here who wants to know about how much has the Fed monetary policy driven inflation? Similarly, the COVID stimulus uh, checks and the measures, how much of that do you think is driving um, inflation at the moment? And I believe this might be a question for both of you. So I'm all we want to start and then kick it off to Elizabeth. That'd be great. Sure. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I wish we could tell you it's exactly 37.2 percent. Um, uh, you know, the responsibility of one party versus another. Uh, but uh, it's, it's hard to say that. I think you actually covered a lot of the contributors. Uh, of course, uh, the Fed has been running a very easy monetary policy for the last two years. Uh, go back to the surprise rate cut before we all uh, ended up being sent home and working from home and, and learning uh, all about epidemiology uh, and masks and all these things that we have the last few years. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the stimulus plans uh, that both the Trump administration and the Biden administration uh, have enacted over the course of the last two years uh, have been significant uh, contributors. Uh, there's also just the fundamental shift that happened, uh, just speaking about the U.S. economy, uh, away from services and towards goods. So away from dining out, vacationing and hotels and towards buying things. Uh, that's probably why. Uh, maybe some of you, like like our house, uh, receive uh, you know uh, many many packages from Amazon uh, in the course of a typical week, uh, and so that is you know has much more to do with supply chain. Um, now you could argue. Uh, we would be have we would have had less supply chain issues had we not been as stimulative uh, in the economy, uh, and and that's certainly true. Uh, but but there's a lot of structural issues uh, as well as you know uh, monetary and fiscal issues that have contributed to where we are today. Uh, Elizabeth, I'll hand it to you to to add your your thoughts on the topic. Great, yeah, I, I appreciate that, Amal, and I, I think you've you've covered uh, you know the the, the big big issues out there and concerns. So um, nice job. Thank you so much. So Elizabeth, I have a question for you now. And as I understand it, many of the US accounting rules deal strictly with hyperinflationary environments. What are those benchmarks before the rules kick in? And are there any incremental impacts on other areas of accounting as inflation increases? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Shivani, that that's correct. Um, it, to kind of step back, you know, basic assumption in accounting is assumption of a stable monetary unit of account, and in the U.S., that's the U.S. dollar. Um, with any level of inflation, this assumption is violated. Um, yet, U.S. GAAP doesn't require adjusting for inflation in the financial statements. Well, the the only place we see adjustments for inflation are for when um, a U.S. company is consolidating a foreign subsidiary that operates in a hyperinflationary environment. And the guidance to determine a hyperinflationary environment generally is an environment with a cumulative rate of inflation of 100% or greater over three years. That's a pretty high, high hurdle, right, a high bar. Um, so in, in the case of consolidation of a, of a 
non-U.S. subsidiary in a hyperinflationary environment. The view there is that the current exchange rates are not relative um, or not meaningful for non-monetary assets, such as land or, or property and equipment. And they're not meaningful because of of the inflation and the effect on the exchange rate. So here's an area where we see a connection with the exchange rates and inflation in accounting. Um, so while we don't account for inflation in the US, um, nonetheless, right, inflation can impact areas of reporting, um, performance, uh, managing performance, and certainly analyzing it. Um, for example, if you consider the balance sheet, it's important to separate out monetary assets and liabilities. Um, and those are assets and liabilities that can readily be converted into a fixed or precisely determinable amount of money, such as cash or a bank loan, from those non-monetary assets and liabilities, which cannot be readily convertible into a fixed amount of money, such as inventory or equipment. So we, think of that balance sheet, the value of all those monetary assets and liabilities is based on money. And with inflation, these monetary assets give rise, can give rise to monetary losses or, or purchasing power losses. Um, and any monetary liabilities can give rise to purchasing power gains. So understanding and managing an organization's net monetary position is really important in this environment. Um, we look at those non-monetary assets and liabilities, such as inventory or plant and equipment, um, those are accounted for at historical cost. And those, those are the costs that are going to flow into the income statement as expenses. Um, so expenses may be artificially low in times of rising prices. If you're inventory, it's going to depend on your cost flow assumption, but certainly for depreciable um, long-lived assets. Uh, the prices are expected to be artificially low. Um, so when we do consider the income statement, then um, profits and margins might look higher because they're inflationary profits. Um, now, alternatively, especially where we are now um, with the economy, uh, if wages are increasing, um, profits and margins could, could go down, right? Um, so of course, it's gonna depend on the company um, and, the company's operations and activities, and two, whether the company can pass these um, costs of goods or services onto its customers. Um, so when you think about the inflation and effects on financial statements, even though we don't do in inflation accounting per se in the U.S., there are areas in, in, in financial reporting where we can observe or expect to observe the impacts of inflation. And these that will kind of vary by company has to kind of where the company is and what the company does. And Elizabeth, just going off of that uh, comment, you mentioned that it will depend greatly on the companies themselves. Um, there looks like there's an attendee question, and I would assume this is for you, but if you would ping it to Amol, feel free to do so. Okay. The question is, what industries do you feel will be impacted the most by inflation and will need to manage it more closely than others? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I could I could um, have a few thoughts and then uh, maybe pass on to Amol. Um, certainly in like areas like commodities where it's, it's, if prices are passed on to the customer, we might not see as great of an impact in, in some of those areas. Um, 
you know, just just going back to what I said with with wages and the pressure on increasing wages, companies that are um, labor intensive, um, you know, whether it be in transportation, as we're seeing, and 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 trucking, um, to um, retail and services that really depend on on people in, in the business, we might see more effects there. But I imagine that because of the supply chain disruptions, um, we're, we're we're going to see effects in, in a lot of lot of different industries that um, in you know getting their raw materials, getting you know their um, their inventory, and if not inventory again, you know, if they're labor-intensive industries, the the pressure on the wages. So I think several industries, many industries, will be impacted, but perhaps in different ways. And just to add to that, Elizabeth, I'd say I think uh, one item you mentioned uh, triggered a thought for me, which is industries that have the ability to reprice their goods. Uh, quickly, uh, their services and goods to, to their customers, whether it's to businesses or uh, or individuals such as ourselves. Uh, those companies are probably going to be less impacted uh, by inflation. Uh, so if you can, you know, uh, immediately adjust prices uh, as, as a result and, and have the pricing power to, to do so, uh, the impact of inflation uh, will be that certainly your costs will go up to, to your point on, on labor. Uh, materials, et cetera, uh, but your revenues might also go up. Uh, margin percent might go down, uh, but uh, but margin dollars might stay somewhat constant. All other things being equal, uh, but it's the maybe the industries where long-lived contracts, multi-year contracts, uh, inability to reprice, or uh, you know, uh, challenger uh, into a market uh, rather than the leader uh, in the market, uh, and challenger may not have the same pricing power that that a leader might. Uh, so I think there's a lot of uh, you know different forces at play that could uh, have an impact on how any individual company or industries is impacted by it. Uh, you could even have scenarios where an industry is not impacted, but a certain company within that industry is greatly impacted um, due to the strategic decisions uh, and positioning that they have. Thanks so much for jumping in there. And I want to take a second to apologize to the attendees for any background noise you might be hearing on my end. There seems to be a little bit of construction happening above me, uh, but just be uh, be cautious. It's not your computer. It's coming from our end. But the conversations so far are going great. And I also want to thank the attendees for their continuous questions that have been coming in. But I wanted to switch gears here a little bit and we'll come back to the attendee questions as they tie in really well. And Amal, I have a question for you now, which is what are some of the hedging strategies, currency and otherwise you see being implemented as inflation and currency volatility increase? So I'll, I'll break down the hedging strategies into three categories that the company are, are focused on uh, rates, uh, currencies, and, and commodities. And, and maybe I'll, I'll start on the currency side. Uh, you know, recently, as, as a firm, every few years, we do a study of uh, financial uh, hedging practices by publicly listed U.S. corporations. Uh, so we review over 1,000 uh, 10Ks and, and Qs of over 1,000 different companies <laughs> to try to put together a picture of you know, how our companies managing um, the then current environment. Uh, and as recently as a few years ago, we found that just only, you know, about uh, just a little bit over half uh, of uh, public companies that have some form of FX exposure are hedging their risk. 
Uh, today, though, uh, what we have seen anecdotally, and we have <coughs> updated this study just yet, and that's a uh, summer 2022 item for us, uh, but uh, today what we're seeing is many companies that did not have a currency hedging program are putting one in place. And companies that did have a currency hedging program have really been looking at saying, is this doing what I wanted to do and what I needed to do? Should I be using options or should I stop using options? options. Um, should I be hedging more currencies or should I be hedging fewer currencies? Am I accounting for my hedging strategy in the right way or not? So that's a major uh, category of action that we're seeing. Uh, secondly, on the interest rate side, as we've noted a few times uh, on, on this call, as I've noted, uh, there is an expectation of rising interest rates in the U.S. We've already seen you know, longer term Treasury yields increase materially. Uh, the market has moved from an expecting two rate hikes in 2022 to you know, some banks are calling for now four plus rate hikes in 2022. So uh, we are seeing companies do uh, two different strategies. One is lock in low rates while they can. So some form of pre-issuance hedging, swapping floating rate bank debt or term loan debt into fixed. Uh, we also see larger public companies that are investment grade uh, doing more asset liability matching between their cash balances, their investment portfolios, and their debt uh, on their balance sheet, uh, i.e. they're trying to match floating rate assets with floating rate debt uh, synthetically, uh, if possible, or naturally, uh, though that's less likely. Uh, so on the interest rate side, we're seeing those two strategies uh, happen. Uh, and then finally, last but not least, on the commodity side, uh, unquestionably in the last 12 months, we have seen more companies uh, execute on developing commodity hedging strategies, bringing treasury procurement together, uh, bringing different parts of the business together to link supply chain challenges, as, as Elizabeth had mentioned, with financial tools uh, that can be used to mitigate the price impact of, of those supply chain challenges uh, and uh, really approach it as a bit of a team effort, uh, if you will. Uh, and these are conversations that were theoretical three years ago that have turned very quickly to practical uh, and large companies, you know, not just uh, you know, family-owned companies, but Fortune 100s are executing on commodity hedging plans in ways that we have never seen before, uh, at least in the 20 years that I've been doing this and working with these firms. So that's what we've seen. And on the note of currency hedging, there seems to be a couple questions that have come in, and I'm really excited to jump into some of these topics. But there is one specific question that relates really well with uh, on the topic of cryptocurrencies and how they tie into currency hedging. Do they have a role for companies when it comes to inflation? Uh, well, I have a lot of personal thoughts on the matter, but maybe I will uh, I will refrain from uh, sharing all of those personal thoughts uh, and say, uh, I think there's a challenge that most companies are dealing with in cryptocurrencies. Uh, I will say we are receiving more questions about crypto and NFTs than ever before. We have a number of clients that are looking to receive payments in crypto for services and goods that they provide. Uh, but linking it to inflation, I think one of the practical challenges is that it's hard to draw a direct, you know, short-term link uh, between 
uh, using cryptocurrencies as a hedge with inflation because there just isn't that much data on cryptocurrencies. Uh, the data that we do have, uh, I think you can tell whatever story you'd like to tell. Uh, you know, if you look at the very recent past, uh, we've seen Bitcoin, for example, decline precipitously uh, right at a time when inflation has been you know, running highest. Uh, so that would indicate maybe it's not a good short-term hedge. Uh, perhaps it's a good long-term hedge uh, as Bitcoin is still materially higher, uh, just using that as a proxy for cryptocurrencies. But you know, Bitcoin is still materially higher than where it was a few years ago. And obviously, generally, prices are higher uh, on a US dollar basis for most things today than they were uh, a few years ago. Um, I would say for most companies, you know, the, the hedging really you know, it comes back to what is the purpose of hedging. And we would suggest that one of the big benefits of hedging is it smooths out uh, variable outcomes and it buys time for companies to make fundamental adjustments to their business as they might need to make. Uh, and those might be strategic, opening new plants, factories, um, changing distribution uh, networks, uh, pricing. Um, you know, those are all strategic uh, issues. Uh, and so to the extent that cryptocurrencies are a nice long-term hedge for inflation, uh, I might suggest uh, you know, considering an alternative, which is investing more time and energy on strategic drivers of the business uh, rather than using crypto uh, to hedge long-term inflation risk. Yeah, and and you know, let me just add to that an, an accounting perspective on this. I mean, if, if there were a real economic reason to to head to use cryptos to hedge cheese risk or provide some some benefits uh, edge inflation is one thing but from a financial reporting and accounting perspective under us gap a, the holdings of cryptocurrency are are treated as an intangible asset um, which is a little um, striking but cryptocurrencies don't fit the definitions of other assets um that a company can have under US GAAP. So cryptocurrencies are treated as an intangible asset, um, which means if there's their value increases, which it's likely to do in markets, um, we don't see that reflected on companies' um, financial statements, um, certainly not their balance sheet. If their value decreases and there's impairment, we might see that reflected. So in addition to their prepping, you know, um, the real economic activities from a financial reporting perspective, there there might be some issues and, and, and concerns there or some um, outcomes that uh, that really need to be uh, thought through. And Elizabeth, I think we've actually already seen that with some companies that are large holders of of cryptocurrency uh, in the public markets, um, I, I think uh, you know some of those firms have uh, have already had to deal with this issue of you know inability to write up, but having to write down is a colloquialism right. on the the value uh, of uh, of those assets. I actually heard uh, one of the senior executives of, of one of those firms speak at a at a conference. Uh, uh, late last year, I think in November of, of last year, and and he made very clear that they they view it as a long term investment, uh, but but that it was frustrating, I think, but uh, but still they view it as a long term investment, uh, uh, which does require you know quarterly uh, review with their analysts of well this is what happened to Bitcoin, which is why we took this write down, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, exactly, exactly. 
Thank you both so much for sharing your insights. And the topic of digital currencies seems to be picking up in our question and answer box. And there's another follow-up question here that's asking, how do you see digital currencies impacting the US dollar or other major world currencies? Uh, maybe I'll take a first stab and, uh, before, uh, and then hand it over to you, Elizabeth. I, I think it's really hard to know uh, what the impact is going to be. I think we're already seeing digital currencies uh, impact the world and, and the world responding to that impact. Uh, th there are absolutely some meaningful benefits uh, that, you know, some of the technologies underlying these digital currencies uh, are uh, are providing, uh, you know, so faster movement, faster settlement, movement of, you know, of cur of well, uh, that that particular currency, that cryptocurrency, you know, from one wallet to another, uh, you know, materially faster than if you ever had to send a wire uh, or write a check or anything along those lines. Um, so that speed, uh, you know, just makes sense. In a in a world that has is moving materially faster than you know the amount of time it takes to mail something from one person to another, uh, you know how how uh, countries and regulators are going to respond uh, to this uh, is a big unknown. Uh, the uh, Federal Reserve uh, has been uh, working on the concept of a digital dollar. Many of you may be familiar with this, but for those of you that aren't, uh, this is a major topic uh, that is on the list, uh, of the to-do list, if you will, of, of the Fed. Uh, they put together a white paper without an explicit recommendation, but uh, you know, with the number of questions and considerations uh, that would have to be uh, taken into account. Uh, but who knows, maybe 20 years from now, we'll be looking at uh, digital dollar, digital renminbi yuan, uh, digital euro, et cetera. And then maybe that will you know, change the nature of how we do things and all of our uh, accounts will be linked and you know everything will be instantaneous. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you know, these Currencies obviously they have had you know an impact uh, on investors, both institutional and individual investors. Um, they, they are probably viewed closer to the speculative and investment grade class uh, rather than they are viewed as you know mediums of exchange uh, in, in the majority of the world right now. Uh, so. You know, probably far too early to tell what the impact can be, although I, I suspect the impact is something that uh, we might underestimate uh, in the long run while overestimating in the short run. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, it's a, a great response. And you know, it's a, a bit beyond my area of expertise. I know I have some personal views, but I, 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 I think that uh, the last statement about under an overestimation was really, uh, really on, on target. Elizabeth, I have a question here that I believe will be in your area of expertise with regards to cryptocurrencies and accounting. But um, it's heard that the FASB and the SEC are considering taking up the topic of accounting for cryptocurrencies. Do you think this will make it on their agenda anytime soon? Great question. And my understanding is um, it is on their radar um, and they haven't taken it up because they haven't felt there was that it, we'd reach a critical point where it affected enough companies um, that that it was an issue that they needed to take on. Um, so if we, uh, it 
if we believe that it is an issue that they should look at, that it is increasingly becoming important in in the reporting and business operations of a company, certainly we need to kind of make that known to the the, the, the SEC and FASB that you know, um, companies would, would like them to address this because it is becoming an important business issue for them. Awesome. Thank you so much. And before we switch gears, I want to take a couple more attendee questions because they seem to have been coming in really nicely. Um, but there's a question here and I will leave it open on the table for either one of you to take a stab at it. But the question asks that besides inflation, there is a great deal of political risk going on in the market with regards to the situation in Ukraine. What issues does this bring up from a financial reporting perspective and from a currency perspective yeah i could start from a from a financial reporting perspective you know, where this would come in is where you know, if a company has uh, material exposure um exposures in the ukraine right and if that's something that they should be reporting or making financial statement users aware of so um you know certainly why they're you know, uh, large political issues as for a, a reporter a financial statement it will depend on their exposure and their risk in, in this part of the world. And then on the um, on the maybe currency volatility side of you know, uh, unfortunately we've we've seen this happen with Ukraine. Uh, I guess it was uh, 2014, uh, maybe I, I recall just after the uh, Olympics uh, in, in 2014, when uh, Russia had invaded a, a portion of Ukraine. So we've seen, you know, whipsaws and currency volatility there. Uh, the, the question, uh, if you're already operating in, in uh, Ukraine uh, is, you know, how can you manage that now? Uh, and it, that could be quite challenging uh, with the Hrivnia, um, given the volatility and the liquidity of that particular currency uh, against the dollar or the euro. Uh, more broadly, a question, you know, you could take this question as that there's inst political instability isn't limited to just uh, the Russian-Ukrainian border. Uh, it is, you know, quite present all across uh, the, the globe. Uh, and, you know, I think that the answer to that is probably very different uh, in a risk on versus a risk off type of uh, market environment. We appear to be in a risk off uh, market environment, which might imply uh, all of those other factors could compound and add much more volatility than there would otherwise be uh, in a lot of these locations. Uh, perhaps in a risk-on market environment, uh, i.e., you know, uh, more money flowing to EMs or, or even you know other unstable uh, developing or developed markets, uh, you, you might see otherwise less uh, currency volatility. But but right now we, we appear to have the uh, switch uh, appears to have flipped very quickly uh, in you know general market tenor uh, from risk-on to risk-off. Uh, which I suspect uh, means just be on the lookout much more for financial impacts as a result of uh, political instability and, and currency volatility. And now I have a question for both of you. What advice would you give to an enterprise that is dealing with these risks? but doesn't have the resources of a large company to address them? 
Uh, well, uh, I'll admit this might sound a little bit self-serving, but uh, I would suggest uh, that uh, you uh, of, uh, suggested that type of enterprise uh, avail themselves of getting some support and expertise uh, in trying to navigate, particularly if there are any financial hedging decisions to be made. Uh, it can be really dangerous uh, to simply enter into financial contracts uh, without the expertise. Uh, and as many of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, derivatives uh, are, you know, they're highly leveraged, uh, the most leveraged financial instruments that you can have out there. Uh, and so, you know, entering into a transaction that maybe, you know, doesn't quite suit or fit needs or doesn't quite solve the problem uh, can be, you know, quite significant uh, impact later on down the line so so probably my first recommendation would be you know bring uh bring some somebody in uh who does have the expertise uh that can work with you and your firm to develop strategies that are appropriate uh, for trying to manage uh, some of the risk you're, you're considering yeah and I, i'd also um add there you know, I think a lot of areas company can, can look at and probably are. Um, we, we talked about inflation and those purchasing power gains or losses on the uh, net monetary position. So thinking about like natural hedges on your balance sheet with your monetary assets and your liabilities, um, what your positions are there, um, looking closely at cash holdings um, and determining whether that's the best place for, for, for to, to put this asset or whether um, in alternative kinds of investments or in the operations. Um, yeah, uh, we we're talking about earlier, as Amol said, uh, locking in low interest rates now, right? If if there's an opportunity to um, to issue debt or refinance debt at, at low interest rates, now would be a great time to do that before interest rates uh, increase, as they're expected to do. Um, and then from a, pure, a purely accounting perspective, um, a couple things there. Um, you know, if you're a company that holds inventory, I mean, I'd really take a close look at your you know, standard costs and overhead rates. A lot of times it's done annually, but if the prices are, are rising, um, it's better, you know, it might be worth looking at that sooner rather than later to reassure that the current costs are now reflected and, and how, and that will help in managing the business and, and the, the prices that you're charging. Then also, if um, you're in a inventory oriented uh, business, um, from an accounting perspective, if you could consider adopting LIFO as a cost flow assumption, right? If you're expecting your inventory and costs to prices to, to rise, um, there is a cost savings. Right? And that uh, LIFO was put into play in the U.S. back in the 70s when we had you know, the high, you know, some of the highest and most persistent inflation in, in recent history. And since then, you know, a lot of companies have, have moved away from it as prices have been more stable. But there is a tax saving to be had there. Um, however, there, there are costs to reporting under LIFO, such as record keeping um, and additional disclosures in the financial statements. Great, thank you so much. And as I uh, look towards wrapping up the question and answer before we head to taking some more attendee questions, there's one question from the attendee audience that's come in, Elizabeth, which is for you. And it reads, has there been any recent projects in the accounting standard setters that would impact the treatment of inflation on accounting? 
Uh, not that I am aware. Uh, um, I believe it's an issue that's being talked about a little bit, but not, but not a lot. As I said, that you, know, the basic assumption of a standard unit of account um, is violated all the time, and when inflation is is low, it's still violated. Um, even when inflation was very high back in the 70s and 80s in the U.S., the the, the FASB at the time took the took the position of rather than changing the accounting in the face of the financial statements, additional disclosures should be presented in the footnotes to the financial statements on, on current costs, on monetary gains or losses. So investors would have information about the effects of inflation on a company. Um, but, you know, currently I, there's not, I don't see that, that pressure being there to, to um, go back to any um, accounting for inflation or additional disclosures for inflation. Um, now that said, in a company's corporate disclosures, um, such as in their MD&A, where they t- talk about uh, costs and, and prices and variances um, and do the, the variance analysis, you know, changing prices or rising prices might come more into play in that discussion. And that would be a discussion worth having perhaps. Thank you so much for your um, insights and for your thoughts. I'm now going to open the floor up to uh, questions. And so I encourage all of our attendees that are here to submit any and all questions they have, and we'll try to get through as many as possible. But looks like there is one that's come in and it asks, do you think regulators will be watching how companies disclose inf- inflation more closely over the coming quarters? Yeah, I, I, I could take that one, and I, I believe they, they will. And as I said, in the MD&A, companies often disclose, you know, year to year analysis, quarter to quarter, to and, and rising prices has been one of the areas of variation. Um, I think companies are a little bit hesitant to discuss inflation per se or future expectations. For it, um, and that m- might be happening as, a, as an area of risk, or where they see that with, within their organization. Um, but certainly, helping in- investors and financial statement users understand um, where inflation or rising prices are are affecting the company. Um, whether it's you know the th- thinking walking down the income statement is it in you know, revenues? How are revenues changing? Because um, prices are, might be increasing um, or prices charged to customers are, are increasing as a result of inflation or in, and certainly how costs are changing um, with you know, volume versus rising prices. Um, so I, I believe as you know, we are in a more inflationary environment, there might be some expectation uh, about, to have that discussion in explaining a company's uh, operations and results of its operations. On the topic of um, inflationary environments, there's a question from an attendee that asks what events or conditions will occur to slow down the pace of inflation? Uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, I I think uh, 
ultimately what will slow down the pace of inflation is a combination of uh, you know supply chains catching up and demand reducing um, whether one of those uh, uh, will happen more quickly than another or they'll happen simultaneously is probably the the big question doesn't sound particularly fun to have uh, demand you know, demand destruction, because probably for everyone on this call, demand destruction means that we're at, you know, our firms are probably selling less to our customers uh, in one way, uh, shape or form or another. Um, so supply chain would be nice uh, for, for that to, to happen. Uh, you know, generally that's on kind of, you know, one element of it. The other side is on the labor side. And, and of course, uh, and, and I'm sure Elizabeth can share more. Inflation begets inflation, um, and so, as you know, on the labor market side, uh, we appear to have a meaningful uh, gap uh, between job openings and those that are looking for jobs. Uh, hence, you know, it's not clear whether it's that many people leaving the labor force, so much as uh, we have resignations that are aligned with. You know, people taking on new jobs, new responsibilities, new ways of working. Uh, and so, you know, bringing that into balance uh, probably will take time and a combination of more workers, uh, you know, change in expectations uh, and perhaps investments in technology uh, that we're already seeing, uh, you know, Probably you've seen it at some of your favorite local restaurants, uh, if you've been out recently, where you know, they've been able to and been forced to make do with with fewer workers uh, serving the same number of of, uh, of patrons. So, um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that's a very specific answer, but but I think uh, it's uh, you know, trying to cover all the bases of, of what it will take to bring inflation down. Yeah, and and I love I love that answer, Mo, because it goes back to why why we think we're in an inflationary time now, right? It goes back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning about what are some of the drivers of inflation now, and it's kind of undoing those drivers or seeing them turn around. And, you know, that's often harder to do or to think about, as you said, with the wages, that would be a, a huge issue, the the, um, the labor and, and labor shortage. Um, and, you know, on the demand, while we don't, you know, we want to see that, still be there. Um, it was a bit of a viewed as pent up demand. So there might be like an over rebound um, with a rebound kind of waiting, waiting to happen on that. But I mean, I think many of the factors that kind of led to where we are, I think kind of will have to unravel uh, to, to get us back to a, a, a more stable place. Yep. And where, Anmol, this is perhaps the question that's directed more towards you, but Elizabeth, feel free to jump in. What do you think of the risk of, what do you think of the risk of a currency crisis that could impact a severe global impact such as 1992's Black Wednesday? Uh, well, that for those of you that are not familiar, I, I believe that was a reference to um, the, uh, uh, the sterling, um, uh, the uh, UK currency, uh, uh, and you know I, I'm I'm willing to be checked on this, but I think uh, 
you know, some of these events when they occur feel much more dramatic uh, than they actually are in terms of their impact on the global economy. Uh, that said, uh, we, you know, generally in currency markets, uh, black swan events happen about 10 times more frequently than the, the data would, uh, than the implied volatility would suggest. Uh, so you get three sigma moves about 10x, uh, 10, 10 times more often than you'd expect. Um, which maybe you know begs you to ask the question: Is it really a three standard deviation move if it happens that often? Um, but uh, you know, the, the reality is uh, that we have more volatility. We're going to have more volatility. Uh, but also, you know, as a global economy, we are more able to withstand that volatility than we ever have been before. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that a company can withstand that volatility. Uh, I recall, you know, when the euro uh, several years ago went from, you know, 120 to pushing parity and we started, you know, dealing with questions of, you know, can the euro survive? Will it go below, you know, one? Um, we had a client that uh, had uh, not hedged their currency exposure and broken their covenants, uh, needed to recapitalize themselves. Uh, and while the global economy kept on humming along um, to the point that you know some of us on the call might not even remember that uh, the euro got as low as 106 and, and change, uh, uh, for that company uh, and that uh, executive team, <laughs> including their treasurer, uh, they, they didn't get to keep humming along uh, quite as nicely as all the rest of us did. So, um, so what the the global economy can withstand and what an individual firm can withstand are, are often uh, not aligned with one another. Uh, I would say. And the big question to ask yourself is, you know, uh, translates the global economy questions, global market volatility questions down to what does this mean for our firm and how can we manage this on a go forward basis? Amal, um, thank you so much for your um, insights over there. And as we have five minutes remaining, uh, there's one question here that I think is going to set us off really well to wrap up. And I know that we've talked about some of the areas of risk that come with inflation, but the second half of this question is particularly what I'm drawn to, which is where do you see opportunities for the future? And, and that's a that's a great question. That's a fun one to think about, right? Um, I think we're you know, I, 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 with the pandemic, some of this has started right with, with it, or accelerated, you know, definitely with technology, AI, RPA, that there are so many opportunities to like better leverage that technology, um, especially if we have concern about um, labor work or workforce. That and now is the time to to really to embrace that even more. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add. I think um, you know, in addition to, in addition to to that, uh, I think we're seeing that you know. Uh, what is important to individuals uh, has changed uh, quite uh, quite significantly, uh, and there's probably opportunity all across the spectrum to recalibrate, you know, for employers and, and companies to recalibrate both, you know, how 
we are engaging with our employees, to, to your point, Elizabeth, but also with uh, customers and, and clients uh, as, as you think about, you know, what, what this means uh, and, you know, much more digital uh, native uh, adoption uh, and you know, changing nature of uh, how uh, individuals are, you know, acting in, in response to this uh, global pandemic. Uh, it will be interesting, I'll share, to, to look back and, you know, see five years from now, uh, how society has, uh, in what ways it's changed and in what ways it hasn't changed. Uh, and I'm also really curious, uh, we have young young kids, uh, I'm kind of curious how much the pandemic is gonna you know, factor into their college essays in you know, uh, five or six years when it's time for them to, uh, to write those. Uh, because uh, I think uh, you know, we probably have a whole generation that's impacted in a very different way. Uh, so these are some long-term, uh, long-term impacts uh, to, to think about today. That's great. You both brought up some really exceptional remarks today, and I want to wrap up, but there is one last question that I think is very beneficial for me to ask. But the question is, what advice would you give to someone just getting started in learning in this area? Can you recommend any good resources or books to learn more from? I wish I had. Uh, I wish I had some good insight on this. I, I tend to read uh, things. Uh, I like reading uh, about things that don't have to do as much uh, with my day job uh, to, to round me out a little bit. So I wish I could, you know, share uh, some some good insight there. But I'll, I'll maybe offer it to Elizabeth to, yeah. uh, to to share any insight you have. Yeah. No. I, I love this question too. I mean, as an educator, um, you know, at, at a university, I think about our, our programs, our, our degrees, our certificates, and. And um, one of the the things we've seen a, a need for, and, and believe that there's there's a demand, is um, more financial management expertise in and the opportunity for education there. So, in fact, we're, we're launching a new uh, master's degree. It's part time online in accounting and financial management. I mean, that might be perhaps more than than you're looking for, but I, I think for somebody um, kind of. At, looking at this in, in the long run for their career and opportunities and really kind of understanding these issues in a deep way, you know, that's something that might be valuable. I will share one specific book that could be interesting for those that are trying to understand uh, the history of central banks. Uh, I read uh, Lords of Finance. I'm not sure if you've ever read that one, uh, Elizabeth, but it's about the four key central bankers between uh, and their actions between World War One and World War Two. Uh, and its uh, connection to inflation is that uh, you know, they were trying to deal with the hyperinflation that Germany uh, was was dealing with at the time. So it was a central banker for uh, the U.S., U.K., France, and Germany, um, you know, trying to manage the their respective economies and the global economy and how they dealt with hyperinflation, reparations, and a variety of other uh, factors, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, and now it would be about the hundred year anniversary of uh, of what they were dealing with. So uh, if you're interested, uh, feel free to take that read. Sounds like a great read. <laughs> Thank you both so very much for our conversation today. And we are at the top of the hour. So I want to pass it over to Lily to close us out. But again, thank you so much to both Amo and Elizabeth for giving us your time. Your insights were definitely very valuable to me as somebody who's still learning and understand this 
understanding this topic. So I can imagine our attendees found a lot of value in this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.